Today is April 20th, 2017, and you are listening to A Pint of Law. I'm your host, Matthew Curtis, from the University of Notre Dame, bringing you today's most important legal issues in a way that you can explain to your bartender. Today, my guest is Professor John Robinson from the University of Notre Dame. Professor Robinson has been a member of the faculty at Notre Dame since 1983 and the Department of Philosophy since 1981. Professor Robinson received his JD from the University of California, Berkeley in 1979 and his PhD from Notre Dame in 1972. His areas of academic interest include civil procedure, jurisprudence, and trust in estates, and he has a special expertise in the law of death and dying, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So give us the baseline. What's the problem today? Right now, there are 118,000 people, more or less, uh, in the U.S. waiting for a solid organ. Most of them will die in the next five years unless they get an organ, and most of them won't get an organ. And they won't get an organ for two reasons. There aren't enough living donors, and there aren't enough dead donors. The very best way to increase the number of dead donors we have already discovered, it's by having a declaration of death that doesn't require your heart to have stopped. It's a declaration of death that depends upon your brain having stopped, all of your brain, including that funny part in the back called the medulla oblongata, which controls your breathing. But we have ventilators, so we have people who are dead and breathing because we have a machine making them breathe. They have the best organs in the world. Now let's go back. Your paper talks about the history and the evolution of humanity's concept of death and dying. Where did we start at? Well, we started in 10,000 B.C., when uh, humans were able to determine that somebody was dead, probably the same as Neanderthals determined people were dead. And things stayed that way for forever. That is, people were dead when they stopped breathing and didn't start again after a relatively short time. Uh, the, the, the thing that we call artificial uh, respiration, taking somebody who's drowned and getting them breathing again, that's an invention of the 18th century in the Netherlands. Uh, no one knew how to do it in Rome or Greece or Egypt, any of those places, all of whom had water around them and people drowning. Uh, so a lot of people died who weren't really dead, were declared dead when they weren't really dead, because people didn't know that a heart that had stopped could be started again. Uh, but but that that's all easy. Things stayed really, really the same until 1954. In 1954, a doctor in Boston performed successful organ transplant surgery. And he did it in the best of all possible ways. He took one of two identical twins and took a kidney from him and put it in the body of his brother, uh, who would have died without the kidney. The two of them survived. You can live on one kidney. I don't advise it, but you can, you, you can do it. Um, and neither one suffered from the absence of immunosuppressants, things that suppress the immune system, because most bodies treat most transplanted organs as if they're invasions, and they reject them. Uh, and rejection literally means that the organ no longer functions as part of the body, so those surgeries would fail unless, about 1965, we developed immunosuppressant drugs, drugs that allow me to get a kidney from you and me to survive with your kidney in me because my, immuno, my immune system is suppressed by the drugs I take. That means I'm prey to every disease that comes along, but still, I'd be dead without your kidney, so thank you very much. <laughs> Shortly after 1954, the 1960s, a group at Harvard, and Harvard's a very impressive place, came along and said, you know, uh, getting organs from living people is just not the way to go. Getting organs from dead people is the way to go. 
And we can get them from people who suffer cardiac death, old-fashioned death, but we can also get it if they suffer brain death, new model death. Uh, and, and those people, once they're in a hospital and die there, can keep their organs fresh until the day we need them because we keep on respirating them and doing other things, provide them with nutrition, provide them with hydration, provide them with warmth, uh, until we need their organs. Uh, this is the best thing that ever happened to the organ transplant business. And if we have lots and lots of people, 118,000 who today need an organ, and most will die within five years if they don't get one, uh, this looks like the, the, the best thing that humans can do uh, with respect to saving people from death from uh, solid organ failure, the pancreas, the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidney. So how are we doing at this? We're doing the best we can. We really are. So uh, Indiana, for example, the state of Indiana is a major organ transplant state. Uh, Pittsburgh is the major organ transplant city in the country, thanks to things going on at the University of Pittsburgh. But in Boston, in New York, in D.C., in uh, Houston, in Denver, in, in San Francisco, in L.A., uh, we're doing organ transplants. We, are, we did, let me think now, so far this year... 8,500 transplants have been done uh, from 3,500 donors. Most donors give more than one organ because you know, they're dead. Um, the, the trouble is that uh, trouble is twofold. Uh, trouble is multifold. Um, but, but the basic problem is this. The problem that I'm addressing is this. Uh, is it really true that brain-dead people are dead? It would be marvelous if they were, or it is marvelous if they are. But brain-dead people do the strangest things. So this is disgusting. Think of a dead person. What happens to them? Well, they, they putrefy. They stink. This is literally from the New Testament. Mary says to Jesus, Lazarus will stink because he's been dead for four days. Jesus says, don't worry. Um, whether you're a Christian or not, I mean, that's the human understanding of death. After a short time, uh, humans like squirrels and dogs and owls smell. Uh, they, they, their body uh, starts to rot. People who are brain dead, just so long as they're in a hospital and on a respirator and uh, being f fed parenterally, not through their stomach, um, they, they live for not days, not weeks, but months. Uh, a woman who was 15 weeks pregnant was brought to being 34 weeks pregnant. The baby was delivered. Um, and, and then, of course, they pulled the plug and she, so to speak, died again. Uh, kids who at seven, eight, or nine have these horrible things, usually involving swimming pools, uh, where they're just there too long, uh, they can, upon being removed from the water and not being brought back to life, so to speak, because they're brain dead, they're ventilated. There's a woman right now in New Jersey who's been ventilated for the past 15 months, as far as I know, will be for another few years. And during that time, she will grow. She's a woman. She'll have menstrual periods. Uh, she'll do all sorts of things that are consistent with being a teenager. And, and, and we're saying of those people that they're dead. Uh, and, and whether that's the right thing to say, given that we want to say it, because we really want to get these 118,000 people down to like maybe 18,000 people sometime in, the, in your lifetime and mine, that's the question I'm working on. You cite two main challenges to the status quo determination of death. The first is the restrictive challenge, and the second, the permissive challenge. Let's start with the first. What is the restrictive challenge? Ah, uh, yeah. The restrictive challenge is um, advocated by a guy named Dr. Alan Schumann. He's a brilliant doctor. I, by the way, uh, took high school biology. Beyond that, I, you know, I, all I know, I read in Time magazine. Yeah. So Dr. Schumann says that uh, despite the enormous need for solid organs that are in good shape, the kind of organs that people who are brain dead provide, brain dead people are not really dead. So 
uh, we should take the category of brain-dead donors and either reduce it or eliminate it, uh, which would vastly increase the number of people needing organs who will die without them. It's not because he has any hostility to people who need organs, my goodness, but it's because he thinks that, that for us to treat as dead people who aren't dead is, is wrong. It's the slippery slope that will lead to all sorts of catastrophic results, and it's something since uh, God knows when uh, we, we, we've not done. It's called the dead donor rule. Um, that that uh, that the people who are uh, donors as cadavers have to be cadavers before they can be donors. They're perfectly logically consistent. Um, and of course, the the question is: uh, Is he right to say of brain dead people that they're really alive? Think of it this way: A brain dead person who was in this room would. Uh, start to degenerate immediately. I mean, it, the skin would turn blue. It's not very pleasant. Uh, their hands would no longer you know, fold. If you cut them in the palm, they wouldn't uh, scab and cure. Uh, the only reason brain-dead people, or some of them, are, are not like uh, ordinarily dead is because we take enormous and expensive efforts to, so to speak, uh, ventilate them. Are we ventilating corpses, in which case we're free to take their organs, or, or are we doing something else? If they're really corpses and we're merely ventilating corpses, that means that their liver, their kidney, their pancreas is rotting is 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 lacking in oxygen so that uh, they're no longer useful if they're more than corpses if they're other than corpses then they're not dead so schumann says that we have we are kidding ourselves uh with the best of all um reasons for doing it but but we're still kidding ourselves so what is his basic determination of death oh circulatory death um but 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 um the 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 feature of, oh, here's the worst part, and it's a really hard part. No one knows, and, and, and how could anybody know, how many people uh, who suffer brain death, that is, the entire brain stops working, can be brought back so that with ventilation and with nutrition and with hydration uh, and with uh, other uh, expensive and really difficult things, they're sort of kept going. How many of them could survive for two days, three days, uh, as opposed to two months, three months? We don't, we don't know how to say whether it's 22%, whether it's people under 40, whether it's people who haven't consumed alcohol, you know, a whole set of things that we just don't have data on. But at least some people, he says, he says it's beyond doubt, uh, who have been determined to be brain dead. How about this? There's a sad category. None of this, by the way, is remotely pleasant. There's a sad category of newborns who are born without um, brains. They are anencephalic. They have a brain stem, but, but the, 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 the parts of the brain that we think of as being the brain just literally aren't there. The, 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 where the brain should be, there's nothing. These, these children can breathe because they have a medulla oblongata, which is what makes us breathe. It means that when the CO2, the carbon dioxide in their body is increasing, the medulla oblongata tells the lungs to breathe and the heart to pump. That's sort of a mechanical operation, right? It is. You can call it, that, that's a good way to put it. Although you can imagine some people don't yeah. like the word mechanical, but, but it's exactly right. Um, people think, uh, um, most people think, uh, Parents are told, we're really sorry, you're going to have an encephalic child. Uh, the child will die in three days. We'll give the child comfort care. Uh, we'll do no surgery because that would be just senseless pain. Uh, and, uh, and, and your next child will almost surely not suffer from that condition. It's a terrible, terrible diagnosis. Families have to live with it. Uh, but, but there are people who have, for whatever reasons, mostly religious as far as I can tell, decided to take anencephalic babies take them home, legally, of course, uh, and care for them. And these children live to be seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, 
as, as, as you've read. Uh, and they don't speak, of course. They can't see. They can't hear. But they can sense. They can distinguish you as a stranger from the caretaker as a caretaker. Uh, and the, you know, their bodily functions are, 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 are carried out. You can call them mechanical if you like. So Now, anencephalic people are really different from brain-dead people because brain-dead people, they have a brain, but uh, it isn't working, and neither is that part in the back of the brain that uh, controls breathing and, 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 and all that goes with breathing, namely the oxygenation of their organs. But he says that when you look at anencephalics and, and say, we've decided that they have no chance of living, uh, and they do, that, that's a problem that isn't his. And now look at the brain dead. They're like them, but not the same. Uh, are we mistaken in thinking of them as being um, utterly, I mean, sure, a, a, without a brain, your, your body is a bundle, a bag, a sack of organs. It, it's disintegrated, literally, and it will fall apart in no time. That was the, that was the understanding of brain death, when brain death law were passed across the country and when this Harvard commission uh, made its report about brain death being just as good as circulatory death, cardiac death, as a measure of actual death. Okay, and let's move on to the restrictive challenge. Oh, man. So this is tough. A guy by the name of Dr. Trug, T-R-U-O-G, a brilliant guy at, at Harvard. He really is good, highly respected. He thinks that the dead donor rule is a mistake. Uh, we should regard people who are as good as dead, but not really dead, as if they were really dead. So take Terry Schiavo, a woman who years ago uh, s- suffered a horrible stroke uh, and was rendered almost completely incapable of functioning. She was in a persistent vegetative state, which meant that her medulla oblongata was working. It meant that she was able to breathe. But beyond that, not much. She could have survived for 20 years. Most people with this condition die of pneumonia, even though they're in a hospital. Pneumonia is usually treatable, but at a certain point, the body just can't handle it. No one knows how long she would have lived. Because her husband said, her parents disagreed, that she didn't want to live. She had said she wouldn't want to live. In the condition that she was in, uh, the plug was pulled on her, and she died famously in ways that made the news for months, way, way back about uh, 15 years ago. Uh, as far as Dr. Trug's concerned, people who are in a persistent vegetative state, uh, so they're short of brain death, should be treated as if they were brain dead, and people who are brain dead should be treated as if they were really and truly dead, even if this guy Schumann can show, well, they do funny things, like have babies, you know, and develop uh, develop sexually. Uh, that's just because of medical. Medicine, uh, we, we should abandon the dead donor rule. This is why it's called uh, permissive uh, and permit uh, you and me right now to have advanced directives that say if ever I should be in a persistent, permanent vegetative state, uh, I want the plug to be pulled uh, in a hospital setting where my organs are taken and given to somebody who needs them. And logically, you would also be able to pull up short and say this can happen when I'm actually brain dead. Oh, sure. That's a fortiori, you could say, uh, brain dead and, of course, uh, cardiac death. The trouble with cardiac death, I know you haven't asked, what about people who have good old-fashioned death? As soon as their heart stops beating, uh, as soon as their lungs stop working, so it's a pulmonary, cardiac, circulatory thing, uh, the organs that we want begin to deteriorate. Uh, in the first 15 minutes, the kidneys are fine. You, you take a, the, the liver, you have two lobes, you can take both of those. The heart and lungs, you take somebody's heart, by the way, and, and, and you know, they're, they're not coming back from that. But, but all those organs are in decent shape. After a half an hour, not so much. Uh, after an hour, f- forget it. 
it used to be that when somebody was rushed into an emergency room, and there's a fellow in um, on Long Island who, who works on this stuff uh, very, very seriously. If you if you were to have a cardiac uh, arrest today, and and the the uh, EMTs came and got you, they would, by the way, and they took you to the hospital. They'd work on you for an hour or two to see if they could get you going again. Uh, and at a certain point, you've seen it on TV. They go, okay, declare the time of death. Um, but but what if we want your organs uh, and your heart is stopped? And we say, it's been five minutes. And the doctor says, okay, take them. Uh, if, if we cut back, uh, and I'm not making up the time, this is called the Pittsburgh Protocol. Uh, if we have people, usually they're in a hospital already, usually their condition isn't good. They usually have had several different cardiac episodes, that's why they're in the hospital. Um, and, and we have an advanced directive saying, I do not want uh, any sort of assistance in the event that my heart stops again. I want to be allowed to die. You can say that in your advanced directive. Uh, and we have a person in a surgical uh, uh, scenario, uh, and the heart stops and the doctor looks and says it's five minutes declare them dead uh, we've been cutting back on the amount of time you have to be non-functional uh, with respect to your heart uh, before we uh, before we say that your your, um, your your cessation of circulation is irreversible because the irreversible circulation of, of the irreversible uh, the irreversible cessation of circulation has always been death we just didn't know how how to put it as you can tell when I stumbled over how to say it still much much better than I would have yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so we got a problem. Dr. Trug says the solution to the problem, and it would be an enormous solution, is to generate a massive array of people who are donors because they were not really dead, but they were as good as dead. Uh, we'd solve Schumann's problem by saying we don't really care if they can develop sexually, if they can um, nurture babies and all that sort of stuff. All we care about is whether they've satisfied our criteria for being as good as dead, whatever those criteria are. And Trug's a smart fellow. And by the way, I mean, he means well. I mean, Schumann means well. No, there's no evil person here. And then Trug says, give me a chance and I'll develop that criteria that distinguish those people who are as good as dead. So Terry Schiavo, yes. From those people uh, who aren't dead. So, you know, your grandfather with Alzheimer's who doesn't know what day it is. He's not dead. Uh, and, and others say, well, come on. Once you start saying of Terry Schiavo that she's dead... It's your grandfather who's also dead. Yeah, he walks around. Yes, he can eat and all that sort of stuff. But he doesn't know what day it is. You know, he doesn't know who his wife is. You know, I'm, um, so, so we worry. We worry about people who have serious intellectual dis- difficulties. Why don't we make them donors? Uh, they can't do much. Uh, and many cultures have said that. Oh, goodness, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so these are the two schools. One one says, uh, I'd love to solve the problem of uh, organ shortage, but you can't solve it by pretending that people are dead when they aren't. And people aren't dead uh, when they're able as pregnant women to sustain a baby for 15 weeks. Uh, they aren't dead when as 10-year-olds they become 15-year-olds and sexually mature. Uh, it's just wrong to say of them that they're ventilated corpses because they aren't corpses. The other side says... Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But um, the, the, there's a class of, of, of humans uh, who, with all respect, will never like function humanly again. They'll never have a thought. Uh, they'll have the weakest of sensations. Literally, if you cut their hand, they'll, 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 they'll twinge. Uh, that's it. Uh, when they perform sur- this is this is terrible. When they perform surgery on brain dead people to get their organs, um, they give them anesthetics. 
Why would you do that if it weren't because... Now, you might think you give it because uh, Schumann says where there's something about the human, uh, the human, and he's not alone. It's a fellow named Hans Jonas who argued this way, way back in the 1970s, that there's something about the, the human condition that should drive us to respect the bodies of the dying uh, just as we respect the bodies of the living uh, and make something of their death. Uh, if you read, and I recommend it very highly in the summer, Homer's Iliad, so 800 BC, I believe, uh, it's all about uh, the the dead body of Hector uh, that 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 Achilles wants to mutilate because he hates the guy so much, and and the gods come along now. I know this sounds silly, and keep his body from decomposing, until finally Achilles realizes, geez, I'll die someday. I, I don't want my body. I don't want my father to realize that my body has been disrespected. The the notion that that the bodies he had that epiphany. Yeah, but that's a Greek word. It was the perfect one. He goes to Priam and says, how many days do you need to celebrate your son's death? And Priam says, oh, about, about two weeks. They have a halt in the war. So it's, amazing. it's an amazing story. Not everybody likes it. But, but, but the, that, that humans should respect the dying uh, and respect the dead seems to be built into the human condition. Uh, how it got there, and that's way, way beyond my capacity. So we've got two challenges and they're both logically consistent within their own framework. Um, and, and there's room in between them. So I'm going to go ahead and ask a, a really dumb question here. What's the right answer? Oh, I'm working on that. Okay. Uh, so, so, I mean, there's a whole set. How about this? What's the solution to the problem? Okay. There are a set of solutions that I believe will be in place when my children are my age. So take, take uh, 40 years from now, my guess is, that uh, if when you are diagnosed with a car or your you know your grandson's diagnosed with a cardiac deficiency, uh, they'll take a skin from him, uh, at, you know from from his forearm, and and from that they will develop a heart that that is uh, his heart. They take out the rotten one, they put in the new one, uh, and there's no rejection because it's 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 his body. Um, th- that's one set of solutions. I, that strikes me as inevitable and soon, but not soon enough. So twenty. 40 years. So, I mean, just take this. Um, uh, back in the Clinton administration, the human genome was, you know, sort of like uh, figured out, right? If, seriously. That, so, and we did. And the, so the idea was that a whole set of conditions, among them, for example, juvenile diabetes, uh, would be solved. Cystic fibrosis, solved. Now, I'm really glad they've done the genome. Those diseases still are unsolved. The future is deeply unknown. On the other hand, medical progress since 1850 to 1950 is astounding, uh, and medical progress from 1950 to 2015 is astounding. So we can expect that something like that. Imagine that doesn't work. It just It's impossible. Uh, I don't know how you feel about it, but what if we gave you a baboon's heart? Uh, it's called um, uh, exo donors. They're outside of the species. Uh, you might say baboons have rights to life, and, and that's a serious, but 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 we could easily uh, and baboons are preferable to chimpanzees for reasons that only doctors understand. They're merely that's but 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 we could we could develop uh, animal solutions primate solutions to, to our problems uh, and with respect to kidneys, liver, pancreas, heart, lungs, lungs least of all, uh, baboons would be pretty good donors. 
we're not there yet because, of course, uh, their rejection is a really serious problem. It's not just like your neighbor. It's a different species. But, but, but and, and when you turn off an immune system, you, you uh, expose a person to a whole set of conditions that uh, you and I don't worry about at all. When you catch a cold, three days later, you're feeling fine. If you don't have an immune system, uh, you can have pneumonia, and pneumonia can kill you. And three days later, you're a donor. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's very kind of you. So, so I mean, there are solutions. And, and how about, so, uh, for a person who got a, got an A in biology, um, but, but still, uh, what, what else there is that, that's outside of taking uh, humans and having, like, uh, you may know, one of our priests here uh, donated a kidney so that a nephew of his, uh, what you do is you donate to X, X donates to Y, Y to Z, and then Z gets it to the nephew. These are, these are circles. They're, they're very clever. Donate the kidney, and, and he's walking around. He's live. He's well. It would be better if he had two kidneys, but almost surely he'll you know, live to be 80 and die of a heart attack the way people do. Uh, if we could encourage people to be, to be donors uh, during their life, that's a good thing. Um, I've yet to donate an organ, and I'm not sure. Oh, you have to be a suitable donor. All kinds of conditions have to be met. Um, but, 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 um, but, 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 what's the right word? Uh, rejecting the notion that the brain dead are really dead such that they, they, they no longer could be donors. That would be devastating to our current practice and the current practice in Western Europe, uh, and current practice in China, as far as I can tell, um, of, of dealing with people who have end-stage renal disease and then a whole set of other conditions that, that are endemic in the, in, in the modern world. Whether we, whether we have to do it or not, come back in, on Labor Day and I'll tell you what my answer is, because I'm still, I'm still working through that one. Well, it was a really interesting read, and the, the writing style is really tremendous, so I really recommend reading this. And uh, so thank you so much for joining me. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity. So here's the mic. Uh, tell our listeners what we need to know. So there's the, the, the great athlete, Rod Carew. Uh, all Americans should know who he is. He's one of the greatest hitters of all time. He didn't hit for power, but he hit for singles, and he got 3,000 hits. And he's a great guy, just a marvelous human being. Unfortunately, a couple of years ago, he had a very, very serious heart attack. Uh, and for reasons a lot of lost on me, his kidney failed. His kidneys were failing. One of them was in bad shape. There's another guy you never heard of. I'm reading his name, Conrad Ruland. He played football for Notre Dame for a short time, but wanting a better winter than we have here, he went off to Stanford because he didn't have the, you know, the character to, to stay here for, for our miserable winters. Uh, and at the and he played in the pros. He wasn't great, but he was he made it from college into the pros. Uh, he was the healthiest guy in the world, six six, and looked like a football player. He was a tight end. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he suffered a brain aneurysm a while back, and the brain aneurysm caused brain death. His heart went to Rod Carew uh, at the age of 71. Rod was 71. Uh, Rod is now uh, walking around healthy, exercising. He, he can still suffer rejection. takes a year to t- determine that. But, but it's one of the great success stories. Uh, and, and the family, the family of, of Mr. Rulin is so glad that having suffered this horrible fate, losing their oldest son, who was uh, you know, just a pillar of success in the family and a marvelous guy, losing him, but, but having his heart in somebody else's body is a source of enormous consolation. That couldn't happen without a notion of brain death that is the one that Dr. Schumann is attacking and that Dr. Trug is saying we don't even need to worry about whether the brain dead are really dead. Uh, it's a tough problem. So thank you again so much for listening. 
Um, I invite any feedback or if anyone wants to be on A Pint of Law, please contact me at mcurtis2, M-C-U-R-I, I can't even spell my name, M-C-U-R-T-I-S-2 at nd.edu. Thanks again, and we look forward to bringing you some more uh, great thinkers next time.